Mark Twain, back in the late 19th century, had a lot to say about financier and railroad owner Jay Gould, who was a very rich man. He was the mightiest disaster which has ever befallen the country, commented Twain. The people had desired money before his day, but he taught them to fall down and worship it, continued Twain. Greg Steinmetz, a partner at the money management firm of Ruane, Cunliffe, and Goldfarb, included the Twain quotes and many others in his just-published book, American Rascal, How Jay Gould Built Wall Street's Biggest Fortune. Greg Steinmetz, before we talk about Jay Gould, who was the richest man who ever lived? <laughs> uh, funny you should ask, because I wrote a book with that very title, and I argue in that book that the richest man who ever lived was a Renaissance banker uh, named Jacob Fugger, who did business with uh, the papacy and the Habsburg Empire during the times of Columbus and Leonardo da Vinci. My argument rests on a few things. One is I'm excluding kings and queens from the calculation. They were born into it. Uh, they had all this property that you know, fell into their laps. Fugger was, was more or less self-made. He came from a, a wealthy family of textile merchants, but he's the one who was the business genius in the family and, and took it to this stratospheric level. Uh, so what I did for that calculation, and a lot of people have asked me about it because it, it seems far-fetched that I could make such a claim, but I was just following the standard practice of comparing a person's wealth during the prevailing economic output of, of uh, his or her era. And if I do that, I come up with Fugger having 9% of the GDP in Germany and 2% in Europe. And by that standard, he's even richer than Rockefeller, who uh, shows up on the list of richest Americans at maybe 1.6% of GDP. So if, if you do all these calculations, you get to maybe you know, $400 billion in, in uh, current dollars, um, which puts them on top. Why did you want to write a book about him? And when, what year did you do that? Oh, uh, I wanted to write a book about uh, Jacob Fugger because at the time um, I was, at the time I conceived of it, I was the uh, bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal in Germany. Every journalist wants to write a book. And the one that, that struck me as, as the most novel and most interesting while I was in Germany was about this guy named Fugger, who everyone in Germany knows, like we know the name Rockefeller over here, but apart from those who take European history in college, where you learn about Jacob Fugger and his relationship with Martin Luther um, and his, his impact on, on creating the Reformation, uh, you would have never heard of him. So um, it, it was very simple. I, I thought, okay, I want to introduce this vastly important figure to an English-speaking audience and... Uh, Fortunately, the people at Simon & Schuster agreed with me that this is someone that people should know about and would be curious to know about. What year did you leave the journal, and why did you go into money management? Well, I left the journal in 2000, <laughs> and the book came out in 2015. I, Because it was working, it was hard for me to uh, devote full time to it. 
and a book where uh, you're plowing new ground, where the sources are in German, uh, it just took a long time for me to do. So I left journalism uh, for two reasons. One is I was having a head started on a, a growing family and I wanted to make more money. Uh, second was, as an editor, I wasn't doing what I loved anymore, which was writing stories. So between the two of those, that got me out of journalism and then money management. And it was at a good time because, as you know, the number of people employed in daily journalism has just plummeted since uh, 2000. It's now a, a fraction of what it used to be. It's very sad. Going to your current book on Jay Gould, you write near the end that he lied he cheated, he stole, but he was so good at what he did, so intelligent in the execution, and such a clean, kind, and industrious family man that try as you might, you can't hate him properly. Expand on that, please. Well, those, those are my words. Those are the words of Sinclair Lewis in his famous book called Babbitt, where he describes a small-time businessman in his fictional town of Zenith, which everyone thinks is, is in Minnesota somewhere, <laughs> who was, was a good guy on the surface, was a devoted family man, but cut corners to make a living, as a lot of other people in that community would do. Uh, you know, petty real estate fraud, other things like that. Um, he was good at it and succeeded in his objectives, which was providing for the family and, and seeing that his son got a good education. And so you, you weigh the good and the bad in Babbitt, and you get a, a mixed picture. There's this duality there. And I thought, as I, I happened to be reading Babbitt at the same time I was working on this book, I said, well, well that captures Gould, too, because Gould did all those things. He was, he was ruthless when it came to to business. Um, he did lie, he did cheat, he did steal, but at home he was he was wonderful. Uh, he loved his wife, they had six children together, he came home every night for dinner, there's absolute, absolutely nothing in the historical record or even hinted at in the press, which didn't like Gould very much, that he was anything other than a great family man, and even the New York Times begrudgingly times hated gold they begrudgingly said well here's one thing nice we can say about gold and there is a, a show out i think it's on netflix called gilded age right now and it's about a robber baron who lies cheats and steals but at home is this loving family man and their model for this person without question was jay gold yeah it's a composite they they use some stories from vanderbilt's life to drive the plot along they use some stories from Carnegie, but at the end of the day, more than anyone, this character who they call George Russell is Jay Gould. And they were able to create this this character that was a very complex character. Had his, he had his evil side and he had his good side. And the, the narrative tension in that TV show, more than anything, is about their efforts to crack into, break into New York society and win the favor of the Astors. And that comes right out of, of the Gould story. Greg Steinmetz, you didn't ask me this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. 
and it's not uh, a, a comment on your book. But the reason I was drawn to want to interview about Jay Gould is my mother, over 100 years ago, was born in Para Gould, Arkansas. And I didn't pay attention to it as I was growing up, but I went. I wanted to go see her. She was dead. I wanted to go see her little town that she was from, about 25,000 people. But it was obviously named after Jay Gould and a guy named Paramore. But the interesting thing about it was Gould was ticked off because his name came second. And I wonder if that uh, makes sense to you based on how much you know about this guy. Well, first, I'd never heard that story before. It's very interesting. There's a town in Pennsylvania that was named Gouldsboro because of the tannery he built there. There were places uh, in Arkansas and Texas that were desperate to get uh, railroad lines coming to their towns, and this was probably one of them. And in return for for that, among other things, um, I could see how they would want to honor Gould by by naming it. Now, was he... Would he have been upset by coming second? Yeah, maybe. Um, he might have just looked at the value of his contributions versus the value of this other guy. And I could see how how maybe he would be upset. He he had a little bit of a thin skin. There was a incident where he went to Texas and tried to get a town there to take a railroad line. And they told him, no, thank you. We don't want it. And he wrote in the in the logbook of the of the, the guest signature book of the hotel where he stayed in that town, he said, you know, this will be the end of this town because without a railroad, you guys are sunk. And that's evidence of the, of the thin-skinnedness that you described. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. How would you describe him physically? He was short. He was five foot two. He wasn't uh, in the Civil War. He would have bought his way out for $300, except because he was under the height requirement, which I believe was 5'3", he didn't have to go. Uh, he was frail. He had uh, a beard. He had a mustache, like a lot of people in his days. Um, and he also had a, a pointy nose and dark skin, and that led his critics to conclude on the basis of nothing else that he was Jewish. Anti-Semitism ran high in those days. It was an insult to call someone Jewish. Uh, Gould himself had no problem with Jewish people. Uh, one of his bankers was J.W. Seligman. Gould looked up to him. But his detractors, which were, were the waspy elite, they used his appearance uh, to condemn him. Where did he live and how well did he live once he had made his money in New York? He lived on Fifth Avenue in the 40s. He bought a house that used to belong to the, the mayor. It was a mansion um, along what was then called Millionaire's Row. He wasn't uh, ostentatious in the least, and his wife had good taste. 
So their apartment was furnished with the furniture that was fashionable at the time. Uh, furniture made in France uh, was very popular, oriental rugs. He had his fair share of oil paintings on the wall. He was a modest collector, um, nothing special compared to some. The, the one thing that stuck out about his brownstone mansion was there is a gaslight on the corner, which was unusual. It was one of the few houses in New York to have that. He didn't put it there. That was an honor that was given to anyone who served as mayor. But Gould certainly liked that because he would often leave his house at night and, and just hang out out front or walk down the street to a hotel bar where he could gossip with other investors and traders. Now, that was one house. He also had a mansion up the Hudson in Lyndhurst, uh, Terrytown, New York, and he was the third owner of that property. It's this, this sprawling Gothic pile, which served once as the as the setting for the movie version of the soap opera Dark Shadows with Dracula and Wolfman and all that. Uh, it it's creepy, and you can you can picture it very easily with with a lightning crashing over it and and rain beating down on it. It was that sort of place that. Uh, works well in horror movies. Uh, the house itself on the inside is it's very nice. A uh, lot of bookshelves, book uh, gold red all the time, a lot of paintings. As I mentioned, he, he was a, a modest collector. Um, nothing nothing on the walls is is famous, nothing that you would recognize if you saw it. A lot of landscapes, um, a lot of, of realist art from Europe. Uh, Corot, I think, was probably the most famous painter that was represented there. But it was a nice house. Um, he he would commute to New York during the summer from Lyndhurst uh, in a 200-foot uh, steamship. So neighbors, including Cyrus Field, who was the guy who laid the transatlantic cable um, under the Atlantic, across the Atlantic, was a neighbor Instead of taking the train down to the city in the morning, he would come knock on Gould's door, and they would ride together in the yacht. The other noticeable feature about that house is it had the largest indoor greenhouse in the country. And Gould loved flowers. He got that from his mother. His mother died when he was four years old. He has no memory of her other than on the day she died, he remembers kissing her cold lips when he was summoned to say his, his final goodbyes. That's all he remembers about her. But her flowers, she was very into flowers, lived on, and Gould became an enthusiastic um, gardener. And he had this, this greenhouse where he kept orchids and roses and everything else. How old was he when he died? He was 56. Couldn't get back to the meat of your book, but uh, before we do that, I want to ask you some more about the family. Um, who did he marry and when? He married the daughter of a commodities trader. And I, I have to think about the exact date. He was in his mid-20s. Um, and he, part of her attraction was he knew that her father had some money, was well-connected, and could advance his own uh, business ambitions. She was also geographically desirable. She lived in Murray Hill. 
Gould at the time was living in a place called Everett House, which I believe is still there. And she would, you know, walk by his door every day. So I think he got to know her that way. Um, and um, they had a nice marriage. How many kids? They had six. And they all they all lived, which I think was unusual. Gould himself came from a family which was, was marked by tragedy. In addition to his mother dying, two stepmothers died, and two of his sisters died. Um, he was one of seven. Interestingly enough, to me, your epilogue had a big impact when I was reading your book. And I, even though it's at the end, I want to have you talk us through this. Um, sure. It starts out by the, the Gould children ignored their father's advice about only spending the interest. They proved as adept at spending the family fortune as Gould was at making it. They weren't as frivolous as Mrs. Stevenson Fish the Gramercy Park socialite who once held a champagne-soaked dinner party for a monkey, but some came close. How how much was he worth when he died? Gould was worth between seventy and a hundred million dollars in contemporary terms, which again, if if you do that calculation before that I was described with GDP, places him. I don't know. 15th or 17th, something like that on the list of richest Americans of all time, uh, right between Warren Buffett and Marshall Field. Um, he, uh, oh, his, his children, you know, one of them, the, the one, Gould did something interesting with the money. He split it equally between all six of them. Um, which is in stark contrast to what Vanderbilt did, which is give 95% of it to his son, William. Vanderbilt wanted more than anything to perpetuate the business empire that he created to see it grow. Gould thought none of these kids are really capable of that. And besides, this is just not fair. I want the, all the kids to have as much as, as anyone else. I want the girls to have as much as the boys. So he divided it up equally. Um, his oldest, uh, George Gould, was not a good businessman. Um, he presided over the, the dissolution of, of some of Gould's crown jewels. He was, although he only was given a sixth of the fortune, he was given the role of CEO at all of Gould's companies. So he was the, the leader of the family at that point. He spent it on a gorgeous estate out in um, New Jersey. Uh, it was the biggest private home at the time. It's now a, a, a college for, uh, I think it's a Catholic college for women. Uh, and another one married a French aristocrat who squandered the money. Um, another one... I think there were two that married aristocrats that squandered the money. Two of the children were, were smart with the money. One was an okay businessman and um, managed to, to fend for himself pretty nicely. One of the daughters, who was Gould's pet, gave up, out a lot of money to charity. And because the, the fortune was divided up, the... Um, there, there aren't, there aren't any Goulds out there right now that that we would know about. 
You know, we know about we know about Gloria Vanderbilt. We know about Anderson Cooper, who is a Vanderbilt. There's no Goulds like that. They they're doing just fine, but there's no notable fortunes there. A couple of notes from your epilogue. Howard, a third son, also married an actress. When she sued for divorce, he claimed she was having an affair with William Cody, better known as Buffalo Bill of the Wild West show fame. Yeah. The court awarded her 36000 a year, then the largest divorce settlement in American history. There's a lot of money there, uh, even after divided six ways. And I don't know how divorce laws worked in those days, but I do know one thing, and that is, the only grounds you could sue on was adultery. You couldn't say, oh, this person was ignoring me, I fell out of love with him, or I fell out of love with her. Uh, that wouldn't cut it. You had to prove adultery. So for that sort of settlement to have been awarded, um, maybe she had something on him. Do you have any personal reaction to someone dividing up that kind of money among their kids and other than his son, George? They, I don't think, did the rest of them work with him at all? Not really, no. They were all still pretty young when he died. He tried to introduce the other boys into the business. The only other one who I think had any any serious uh, business involvement with him was, was um, Edwin, who I think was the second boy. So George and Edwin were the only and my reaction to him dividing it up six ways, yeah, I think that's a nice way to do it. <laughs> but, I, I know how I would, how my kids would feel if I only gave everything to the oldest son. I don't think they would like that. I get, my plan is to to have the last check bounce, right? I, I guess I was going beyond that and what, wanted to know from you whether you think it's a good idea for a father or a family to give their money yeah. to kids uh, and they hadn't worked for it. I mean, there's two... Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Carnegie was the one who came up with what Warren Buffett later renamed the giving pledge, where you give it all away. You you make sure that your kids have enough if they need it so that they're not destitute, but then you give it the rest of it away, uh, either during your lifetime or at the end of your lifetime. And then the other approach is more of the Steve Jobs approach, which was, you know, I can grow this better than anyone I'm going to give it to. And money does circulate. So if my heirs get the money and spend it on contractors and horse trainers and yachts, the money gets back into the economy anyway and, and does its job. So I, I can see both sides of it. I think there's more social prestige that comes from saying I'm going to give it away or actually giving it away. And you can also direct how that's money spent. So Bill Gates, with what he's done in Africa, how many lives has he saved by attacking malaria and other things? It's, it's incalculable, and it's something that government doesn't have money to do. So you can direct how that money spent and do good in a way that you think is the most meaningful. And I think the Gates Foundation, what they're doing, it's just miraculous. In the end, how many miles of railroads did he own? Well, he owned 15% of the nation's track, and I forget the number, but it might have been 10,000 miles, something like that. So one in every six miles of, of railroad in, in the country at the time. And if you look at a map, 
the, the spider web, a railroad truck, they, they just went everywhere. And he controlled uh, more than anyone else. And he also built more truck. He laid more truck than anyone else. So as much as Gould was this rapacious robber baron who was only interested in money, he deserves his fair share of the credit for, for building the country. Who is he? he also put a lot of people to work in the process. Who is he closest to in getting to that kind of ownership? The, a lot of the names you have in the in the uh, book, like a Cornelius Vanderbilt or a Tom Thomas Edison or Andrew Carnegie or any of these people. Who is he closest to? Well, uh, Vanderbilt laid a lot of track, and so did uh, uh, Carlos Huntington, who went from the other direction. Huntington was a uh, a railroad man from California. And the Transcontinental Railroad, which began in Omaha, got as far as where the Golden Spike was in Utah, and coming from the other side was the Central Pacific Railroad. That was Huntington. And then Huntington also built a very large network of tracks along the southern tier of the U.S., and again, Gould came from the other direction. Did Gould connected somewhere in Texas? In getting this fortune, did he ever cheat? Oh yeah, yeah, he cheated. Um, the 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 worst thing that Gould did, I think, in contemporary terms, was was bribing judges. Now, if you think about it, if if you you don't have to tell me your answer, but if if insider trading were legal and you had a hot tip on a merger, would you? take advantage of that, even though some people might consider it immoral. If you were CEO of a publicly held company with thousands of shareholders, but it was legal for you to award a fair share of the contracts for things like printing or real estate or anything else to a company that you wholly owned on the side, would you do it? Well, if it's legal, you you could say, yeah, why not? And if I'm not, if I don't do that, I'm a sucker. A lot of what Gould did was that sort of stuff. Nowadays, it's illegal, or you at least have to disclose what you're doing, which doesn't look very good in an annual report. No one's going to want to buy your stock. But it was legal. Okay. But bribing judges has always been illegal. And bribing legislatures has always been illegal. And Gould did a lot of that. He was in bed with Boss Tweed, the notorious boss of New York City, and they had a business partnership where in return for granting favorable legislation and getting Tweed's hand-picked judges to rule in favor of gold in, in court proceedings, they split a lot of the profits. So, yeah, he, he cheated. How crooked was Boss Tweed, and, and who was he? What did he do? Okay, well, Boss Tweed uh, began as a uh, furniture maker uh, down in the area that's now City Hall. You know, he grew up in modest circumstances, but he was a, a wonderful vote-getter for, for the uh, local politicians at the time. And because of his uh, back-slapping, um, cunning ways, he was able to put himself in a position where he was elected to the House of Representatives. He wanted to be a politician because he saw that as a way to make money. He got to Washington, and he discovered that people were, were too interested in the slavery question 
to be concerned about lining their own pockets. So he left Washington, came back to New York, uh, got himself in the state Senate, got himself appointed to um, some commissions in New York City, but most importantly, he was able to claw himself to the top of Tammany Hall, which was the, the Democratic club that handpicked not only people to run for mayor, but also for governor, for, for every post in the state just about uh, that had anything to do with New York City. So he was a kingmaker, and using his influence, he was able to make a ton of money. Um, his, his greatest economic achievement was building the what they call the Tweed Courthouse, which still exists. It was supposed to cost a couple million. It cost five times what it was supposed to cost. A lot of that money went into his pockets. He would do things like get um, the guy who was laying the plaster or the guy who was painting the thing, uh, the carpenters, get them to mark up their bills. The city would sign off on the bill and whatever was the difference between what the, the contractor was supposed to make, that extra all went into Tweet's pocket, which he divided mostly for himself, but also for those who are in on the scheme. He was a United States congressman for a term. Did he have any impact at all on the Congress when he was there? No, none whatsoever. And he was bored by the whole thing. He hated the weather. He was glad to come back to New York. He was disappointed. I want to take advantage of your knowledge in all this and ask you to define, I'll name a bunch of people that you had in your book, and just, just give us a short background on who they were. Uh, who was Jim Fisk? Jim Fisk was a, more or less, he was a, a great salesman. Uh, Gould got to know him when Fisk was trying to find his way as a broker on Wall Street. He was everything that Gould wasn't. He was charismatic. He loved the attention of the media. He would he was perfectly happy getting his hands dirty if Gould needed enforcers in the terms of, of bodyguards or thugs to provide some cover for him. If Gould, uh, th- these were, were violent times. This was the Wild West, not only out West, but on Wall Street. If Gould needed some muscle, Fisk was the one who would do that. Uh, Gould was a shy person. If he had to collect debts, he could send Fisk out to do it. Most memorably, uh, Fisk was the one who knocked on the door of Vanderbilt one Sunday morning and said, hey, you owe us a bunch of money, um, and helped uh, negotiate that deal, which ended up with Gould being in charge of the Erie Railroad and essentially seizing it from Vanderbilt. A very colorful character. He was a celebrity in New York. He would do things like, you know, march at the head of, of parades, uh, he bought himself a, a opera house and staged sort of uh, lurid, sexy kind of entertainments that would, you know, titillate old men, which was something, those kind of entertainments, burlesque shows were popular in New York at the time, got headlines for that. And then um, he ended up getting shot to death by a, um, the lover of his mistress, mistress. In a, in a love triangle affair, uh, the guy shot him, killed him, front page news, and apart from when Lincoln's uh, funeral entourage passed through New York City, it was the most well-attended funeral 
that the city had ever seen. So he was this larger-than-life celebrity, and Gould was someone who did everything he could to, to keep his name unsuccessfully you know, out of the headlines. Before I leave last tweet, why um, was he in the Ludlow Street Jail in New York when he died? He was serving a, a very lengthy term. He was convicted for his crimes and managed to uh, sneak out from using his old acquaintances. He was able to get out of New York, uh, went abroad for a time where he was recognized and hauled back to New York. And you know, he just died sick and miserable uh, in prison, not far from you know, where he was once the king and where also where he grew up. Who was Russell Sage? Russell Sage um, was nicknamed the Money King. He was another of these guys who uh, had political aspirations because he saw the money-making opportunities in Washington. Um, he came back. He was a master at knowing the value of things. Um, he started off by trading horses. And even as a very young man with very little experience, he knew which horses he could buy for less than he could sell them for. He brought those talents to Wall Street. He created the retail market for, for derivatives, for puts and options. And he would sell uh, these financial instruments as if he were you know, selling you know, bets at the horse track. Because of the volatility inherent in derivatives, it attracted speculators, and, and he made a ton of money. And but the funny thing about Sage is he never spent it. He would brag about how cheap he was. He would eat lavishly, but always on the company's nickel. And he had an enormous fortune when he died. Uh, he did his his wife died when she was young. Uh, Gould married again. Or Gould Sage married again. Didn't particularly care for his second wife. Uh, she didn't particularly care how he never wanted to spend money. And after he died. She did her best to just give it all away. And to this day, the Russell Sage Foundation is still in business doing good things. You say Daniel Drew was broke and disgraced when he died. Who was he and why was he broke and disgraced? Daniel Drew was a was a, a broker on Wall Street who would do things like uh, talk up a stock before he was going to sell it and talked down its prospects before he bought it. He finagled himself into being the treasurer of the Erie Railroad, which gave him control over all the money of what was then the second biggest railroad in the country after the New York Central. Um, he would, like I said, talk up the stop using his own funds, using borrowed monies, doing whatever else it would be, um, short the stock, made a ton of money that way, Everyone knew his game, but he was still able to, to manipulate it just because the force of his words had power. He ended up getting economically destroyed in a uh, short sale battle with Gould. Gould at one time was Drew's partner, but he took no pity on him. And Gould came to him one morning and tried to beg for mercy. He owed Gould a bunch of money, and Gould said, no, sorry. Uh, and he ended up 
having to uh, you know leave Wall Street and went back to Putnam County where he was from and you know, died sick and miserable. His legacy lives on in Drew University out in uh, uh, near Morristown in New Jersey. He had promised them a bunch of money. He gave them enough to get his name on the door, but he wasn't able to to fulfill everything that he promised, but they kept the name anyway. Just a reminder to our folks listening that that Jay Gould lived between May of 1836 and December of 1892. How would you define robber baron? The term comes from... It it relates, you know, in a way to my earlier book. It comes from the Renaissance when you would have... Let me back up a bit. The only people in... in, uh, in Europe at the time, who were allowed to hold weapons were the aristocrats. The knights in particular always walked around with swords. Um, the knights, a lot of knights in Europe were impoverished, but they were aristocrats, and they felt entitled to being rich. So they would see a rich peasant coming down the road, and they would rob him. These were the robber barons. They were barons who robbed. That term was popularized later in uh, by the, the writer Matthew Josephson, who wrote a book about the robber barons. It was about Vanderbilt, Carnegie, Rockefeller, Gould, J.P. Morgan, and others. And he used that term because of the way they got their money and because of how rich they were. And that term, you know, it clicked in popular imagination at his endorse. You, uh, from time to time, quote uh, Charles Francis Adams. Believe grandson of John Quincy Adams. Why was he in the book? Well, he's he's a really important and under recognized figure. He wrote a a book about Gould's battle with Vanderbilt for control of the Erie Railroad, which point by point goes through everything that both of them did that was, if not illegal, but questionable bribing judges, bribing lawmakers, telling lies to the public about what they were doing. And at a time when there was absolutely no regulation for finance or uh, railroads in this country, he was the voice who said, hey, this is crazy what's going on here. This is not serving the public interest. we got to do something about this. Where was Charles Francis Adams during this period? What was he doing? Charles Francis Adams was after he after he wrote his book. Uh, he he got himself appointed to the Massachusetts Railroad Commission. He was one of three superintendents. In that capacity, he oversaw a lot of uh, reports that he hoped by collating a lot of statistics and showing on what was going on with the railroads that he could get lawmakers to pass laws that would make railroads safer, that would uh, make them cheaper to ride, and that would improve the industry for the benefit of, of consumers. But what's interesting about him is that he ultimately got bored of doing that. He got sick of seeing how all his Harvard friends were making a fortune during the Gilded Age, and he became a businessman himself, most successfully investing in real estate in Kansas City. He, for a time, 
ran the Kansas City Stockyards, which was a great moneymaker for him. And ironically, he got himself appointed to the board of the Union Pacific at the time when Gould was in charge of it. The government had given so much money to the Union Pacific uh, to build the Transcontinental Railroad that they were awarded some representation on the board. Adams was one of those. He got to know Gould, and ultimately he took control of the Union Pacific after Gould decided there was more money doing other things besides running this railroad, which at the time was deeply in debt. So he got to know Gould, and at one point they became comrade-in-arms in an effort to bring some, some order to the railroad industry. There were railroads all over the place competing with each other, not making any money in bad times. And Adams and Gould saw eye-to-eye on how to, how to make things better. So as much as Adams hated him, he also admired uh, some things about Gould, including Gould's plan to restructure the industry. Tell me if I'm wrong about any of this, but you're from Cleveland, Ohio. You graduated from Colgate with a Bachelor of Arts degree in History and German and earned a master's degree from the Bedell School of Journalism at Northwestern University, worked for the Wall Street Journal and Newsday. But I want to ask you, because of all the writing you've done about money, finance, and all that, you're now a partner at a money management firm. What does that Mm -hmm. job mean? I look for stocks that I think will go up. We, my firm, Ruane Kniff and Goldfarb, is like Berkshire Hathaway in that we look for things that we can hold a long time. Some of our, um, our, we got started uh, when Warren Buffett wrapped up his original partnership. His clients were saying, hey, where do we go? Uh, he recommended our firm. And by using you know, journalistic tactics of, of deep digging, of making a lot of phone calls, talking to a lot of people, we think that gives us a way to identify you know, great companies that we can own for a long time, um, which is how I got the job. As an investigative reporter, there were skills that transferred. And then I had to learn you know, the numbers part of the, of the equation after I got there. What do you see, if anything that is still present in the whole business of money management and the stock market that was there back during Jay Google's time? Well, if you look at what's going on with crypto, completely unregulated, people doing whatever they want, sending out tweets saying how great Bitcoin is, and then maybe selling it right after their tweets. Um, We have all this financial regulation. We have, you know, I love that there's deposit insurance. There's, there's a lot of good that, that has been done. And yet there are all sorts of people who want to be Jay Gould out there who will do whatever it takes and hope that they don't get caught. Uh, Mark Twain said that you know, the greatest tragedy to ever, greatest disaster ever to befall this country was Jay Gould. What he meant by that is that he provided inspiration to people who would lie, cheat, and steal to make money. So as much as we come up with with laws to restrain people, you look at the Wall Street Journal, some days it looks like a rap sheet. You read about about, uh, accounting fraud. um, You read about pump and dump schemes. You read about 
you know, lying in SEC reports, it, it just goes on all the time because the lure of of making money is just so powerful. How did you track this story? I mean, if you read your book, there's an enormous amount of detail about railroad companies in this country. Where did you find all that? Oh, well, there is a... I, I'm not a historian. I am, am a journalist who likes to write books that I hope people will read because they're interesting. The definitive biography of Jay Gould was written a long time ago by a man named uh, Maury Klein, and he's the one who went through all the archives, read all the court filings, read everything that he could on him. What I did is take that as my base, to be quite honest, and then look for angles that maybe he hadn't uh, explored as much and that I thought were more interesting, like the, the Charles Francis Adams angle, uh, the Great Railroad Strike of 1886, where gold was featured in the headlines every day for 30 days. There, there are some things that I wanted to explore more. And I also, because of, of my uh, work now in finance, I thought I could understand the deals maybe a little better than someone who wasn't working as a financial professional. So I really tried to explain, without bogging it down in, in unnecessary detail, uh, the gold corner of 1869, which is more than anything what Gould's remembered for, his attempt to corner gold and to rope President Grant into helping him make a fortune by cornering gold. What was his relationship with the press? Well, he didn't like the press, but he saw that if he used the press, um, he could make a lot of money by using it as a, his mouthpiece. You know, he he owned the New York World for a time. That was very helpful in him buying the New York Elevated Railroad, which was the precursor to the subway. He would talk about, in, in the columns of that paper, he didn't talk about it, but he had people talk about how this the New York Elevated, which had stock in the exchange, was a disaster, was going to go under. That knocked the price down to the point where he could basically steal it from those who you know, were selling the stock. And then as soon as he got the railroad, the world went the other direction, talking about its great prospects that made the stock go up. He also had a lot of influence at the New York Herald. And this hasn't been that well documented, but I do mention it in the book. He, it looks like, he tried to control the outcome of the 1886 election that saw uh, Grover Cleveland elected to his first term. Gould was a supporter of James Blaine, the Republican. Gould owned the Western Union, which controlled the AP wire service. He controlled the New York Herald. While the New York Times was declaring that Cleveland won the election, Gould said, or Gould's people said, we don't know that yet. We haven't got the results from Indiana yet. We don't know all the results from New York. The AP was withholding transmission of, of the results while the Republicans, presumably, were trying to find more votes. Ultimately, they couldn't find the votes. Gould, <laughs> as much as Blaine, called up Cleveland and said, hey, congratulations, you won. And that settled that the outcome of that election once and for all. So the press was very important. Was he ever arrested? Was he ever indicted? He was arrested. Yes, he 
he was arrested a couple times, but his lawyers were right there with the checks. And was was he indicted? There there were a few grand juries and, and prosecutors who went after him. Um, no, they didn't. They didn't have the goods. But he was arrested and had to bail himself out. How often in the process of writing your two books did you say, <clears throat> this sounds a lot like today? Uh, all the time. All the time. <laughs> even even writing about things that happened 500 years ago. <laughs> sovereign debt. Jacob Fugger was all about sovereign debt. You know, if I loan money to Argentina, am I going to get paid back? Uh, it's the same thing that goes on on today, again and again and again. Because human nature doesn't change, right? Only the technology changes. Human nature hasn't, you know, how, how long have there been humans on the earth? Uh, the course of time, the last 500 years isn't that much. Nothing, nothing's changed. I want to read a, read a paragraph <clears throat> that you wrote. And we talked about Jim Fisk. So, to Fisk's delight, he and Tweed clicked. Like Fisk, Tweet appreciated conversation, cigars, women, and most of all, food. Fisk was fat. Tweed was even fatter. At 300 pounds, Tweed could pack it in. Fisk had a mistress. Tweed had two. Tweed saw an Erie, that's the railroad, the corporate reflection of Tammany Hall. He grasped the synergies. Tammany could pass laws, grant permits, and secure judicial orders for Erie. Erie could benefit Tammany and make Tweed even richer by splitting the profits with him. The benefits were mutual. Any comment? I like that paragraph. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, the reason I, I write these books more than anything is because I really like the act of writing and figuring out just how to craft a sentence or a paragraph and make it interesting instead of just you know dryly reciting the facts. I find that to be the most absorbing thing in the world. So that's why I do it. It's, it's a hobby, right? It's a labor of love. And that act writing and that paragraph for me is a good example of, of what I really enjoy doing and how I feel fulfilled when I hear it being read back to me. Uh, but yeah, that... Boss Tweed, you know, everyone sees the pictures of, of the Thomas Nass cartoons of Tweed. Um, exaggerated, but like every caricature, you know, there's something to it. He was enormously fat. Well, for him, that was a, a sign of prosperity, right? Fisk was fat, too. Um, and I talk about that because Gould was real thin. He uh, barely ate. He had stomach troubles. He didn't like to eat. And he's surrounded by these people who were gluttons. And uh, I was able to, to bring out the thinness and fragility, physical frailty of gold by contrasting it with these two giant figures. Literally giant. Buzz Tweed lived to be 55 and Gould lived to be 56. What, yeah. what, what did Gould end up dying of? Tuberculosis, uh, which was a, a family vulnerability. Uh, his sisters died of tuberculosis. His mother died of tuberculosis. What's interesting in that to me is just how die, how young he died. And we were talking earlier about what he did with his money. 
New York University was already negotiating with Gould at the time of his death. Had Gould lived, he might have his name on the door of New York University. The reason we know about Vanderbilt isn't because he made a lot of money. The reason we know about Vanderbilt is because there's Vanderbilt University, and they play football in the SEC every Saturday afternoon in the fall. We know about Carnegie because of Carnegie Hall. We know about Rockefeller because of Rockefeller Center, Rockefeller University, all the things that he attached his name to. Gould died before he could attach his name to anything. And I think that's why we don't know more about him, even though he was as rich as any of them, and I think every bit as interesting as any of them, and probably more influential. A couple more people. Henry Villard. Henry Villard was a German who fled Germany without telling his parents so that he could come to the United States and avoid, I think, some war that they were involved with in Germany. He also wanted to get under the, the thumb of his father. Came to the U.S., managed to get hired as a war correspondent, even though you know English, of course, wasn't his native language. He wrote some very you know, gripping dispatches from the front lines. Because of his success as a journalist, he had connections in Washington, and he used that to get into business, and he was repre- he represented some German bondholders in a suit against Gould, got experience with the railroads that way, ends up starting the Northern Pacific Railroad, raised money for that. It goes under. Villard is devastated. He thinks his career is over, but lo and behold, he managed to raise more money. He was a founder, along with Thomas Edison and General Electric, and for a time he owned the Nation magazine and I think the New York Post. Um, in New York City, when I walk to work in the morning along uh, Madison Avenue, there's the Palace Hotel. That's his old mansion. So while Gould's brownstone is no longer there, Henry Villard's mansion still is. It's a beautiful building. One last one, and we'll let you go. Sidney Dillon. Sidney Dillon was one of the founders of the Union Pacific Railroad, and he was Gould's uh, frontman for the Union Pacific. He was a partner in a lot of Gould's deals, very influential in the growth of the West. Um, there are a couple towns out there named after Dillon. There's Sydney, Nebraska, and then there's uh, Dillon, Wyoming, I think it is. And he was uh, often the grown-up in the room uh, with Gould and some of Gould's other partners. He was the one who was older than them, had a lot of experience, had influence in Washington, uh, had a wonderful career. Have you found any other possible targets for another book? I'm looking around, and I want to do something uh, that really allows me to tell a story rather than a cradle-to-grave biography. Trouble with writing you know, cradle-to-grave, you have to get into things like um, the person's ancestors, which particularly in my first book, I think I spent too long talking about them and their influence, and before anyone got to the good stuff, they had to, to read a lot of what I think now might be a little extraneous. So I, I want to I focus on maybe a specific event or a sp- 
specific time period in a person's life and write about that. And I want to do something that's a little bit more contemporary. I'm still back in the 19th century. <laughs> I want to do something maybe a little closer to the here and now. There's a lot more, as always, in a book uh, than what we talked about, but we thank Greg Steinmetz, author of American Rascal, How Jay Gould Built Wall Street's Biggest Fortune. Again, thank you, sir. Oh, thank you, Brian. I really enjoy this, and I appreciate it. And like I said, I love your show. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.